um, could say so much about what's already transpired in the service and, and uh, the announcements and the music. Um, it all points to one person, doesn't it? person who accepts people others won't. Our message today is actually from a text that addresses not the people that others wouldn't accept, but the people who thought that they were most acceptable. Jesus' words to a clique of people who ran the religious establishment. And they weren't gentle. And sometimes the words of Scripture aren't gentle. But Jesus says, come to me all who are weary, heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn of me, for I'm meek, lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Remember that the scalpel of God's word brings healing for those who respond as we should. We left two weeks ago with Jonah being told by the Lord these words. The only book in the Bible, remember, that ends with a question. He says, Nineveh has more, thank you, more than 120,000 who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. The compassion of God for a Gentile community of very nefarious reputation, well earned. We won't go into all of that again and reprise what we've had previous messages about Nineveh. All I'll say is uh, God cared for people Jonah didn't. And he convicts Jonah by asking that question. And by the way, by the way, it's in the Hebrew Bible. Translated, of course, into the Greek Septuagint and now down the road to us in our own English and other languages. Uh, but how did it get to be part of the Hebrew Scriptures? Jonah, or his disciples, wrote it. Oh, thanks so much, Jack. Wrote it down for us. It was intended by God, not this whole experience and, and the encounter between God and his prophet were intended by God, not just for Jonah, but for the people of God. He was giving a last call through Jonah to Israel. And if, in fact, Jonah did preach right around the 760 period as uh, Gleason Archer and other ar archaeologists of the Bible have said. And especially if it happened to be, and we don't know for sure, but it may have been, on June 15th, 763 B.C., which would have fit right about the time he would have been there, but we don't know if it was that exact day. There was, a, as you remember, a complete total eclipse of the sun at Nineveh. Oh, my goodness. The thing that happened, the mass hysteria, some would call it. No, the movement of the Spirit of God of conviction. And it didn't need all the catastrophes that were going on, but it built on them. God 
orchestrated them to. It didn't need an eclipse of the sun, but that may have been part of what God did. What we know is that God did something among the hearts of the hardened, most hardened, we could argue, pagan people that Jonah knew of. And then he asks that question at the end. Shouldn't I have compassion? That message is taken to the people of God. They have that book before them. And they don't repent. The Renaissance continues for a period of time as God had graciously promised to Jehu, Jeroboam the king's second, Jeroboam II's great grandfather, and oh, they have a Renaissance in military and, and architecture and, and uh, foreign policy and economics and art and everything but the spiritual. And one generation later, one generation, 40 years is the biblical term. From 763 B.C. And Samaria is surrounded. And if you take that 40 years from 760. Samaria has just been wiped from the map. Israel carried into captivity into Assyria as God had foretold. As Jonah knew that God had said. And apart from those who fled southward to the southern kingdom of the Davidic dynasty of Judah, apart from those, the northern ten tribes ceased to exist. Did you know that? They ceased to exist, except for the remnant that had fled south. Now I say this because this is the backdrop for today's message from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. And it's in your bulletin. In verses uh, 38 through 41. I'll read from the 1984 uh, version of the New International Version. Please follow in the, in the translation you have at hand. And this passage, by the way, is repeated in some, some ways in chapter 16. It's an, the kind of thing that happened more than once, just as it, Jesus' teachings occurred more than once. He was challenged this way more than once. And in Mark chapter 9, it's also... Uh, replicated, well, at least mentioned. And so we have here chapter uh, 12, verses 39 through, uh, 38 through 41. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks, for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. Just thus far in God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have a little time remaining to us to consider these very important verses from your word. From the words of your very son, our Lord Jesus. May your Holy Spirit govern what I will say. And what your people will hear. May we, O oh Lord, 
understand scripture in light of the rest of what you have said. And may you convict, transform, encourage our hearts, we pray. Do business with our souls, we ask. Mine and each one of those present. For we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. A wise man heeds a warning, but a fool keeps going and pays for it. That's a loose translation of Solomon's proverb in chapter 22, verse 3. What happens if someone keeps being warned and doesn't listen? <laughs> sooner or later, sooner or later, if that warning was well-founded, they're liable to pay the price. And we, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, can too often stub be stubbornly unwilling to humble ourselves before God in the way that he is putting his finger on in our lives. You see, there's a gentleness, but also a hardness about the gospel. Now, we like the gentleness. We're drawn to that. We want it because we live in a world that is often hard. But we don't like the hardness of the gospel. We want the sugar without the, the sour. And uh, the Bible warns us of the one in order to yearn, yearningly invite us to the other. But we can't have one without the other. In the text before us, we're taught that Christ's death and resurrection brings both judgment and blessing. Christ's, Christ's death and resurrection bring both judgment and blessing. Now, that's drawn out of our text this morning through the threefold motif of purpose meaning and our proper response to Jesus Christ in the light of the context in which he spoke, in which Jonah ministered, and in which we live today. First, purpose. Jesus' deeds authenticate his message. Uh, the people come to him, verse, uh, the first of these verses, verse 39, 38, and uh, they come to him and they say, uh, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. The Greek word simeon means a powerful sign. Elsewhere it said a sign from heaven in some of the parallel accounts, like in Matthew chapter 16. A sign from heaven, a powerful sign, something that's unmistakable. Now, you need to understand, Jesus had already done that. Jesus had gone among them. He had fed the multitudes. He had... To heal the sick. He had cast out demons. He had raised the dead. Jesus had done all those things. What had they done with the signs that God had given? Those signs weren't done just because Jesus wanted to show off. I have the ability to do this. You know, I can make a bird. Poof. Jesus didn't go about doing that. Every one of Jesus' miracles had a purpose. Beyond just itself. It pointed to him. When the paralyzed man was let down and through the roof before Jesus. What does Jesus say? First thing he says, get up, you're well. No, no. He says, your sins are forgiven you. And people say, well, 
How dare he? Only God can forgive sin. Jesus knew their thoughts and he knew well what it meant. And he said, what's easier? Just to say your sins are forgiven. Who can prove you, you can or not? Only God can forgive sins. That's true. But he says, that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he speaks to the sick of the palsy. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And he did. Jesus' miracles had a purpose. They pointed to him and to his saving work. Yes, he cared about the sick. He cared about the grieving. But he also cared about the root cause of sickness and grieving. He didn't just put band-aids on social sores. He cared about them. He didn't wave them off and say, it'll be a pie in the sky by and by when you die. He didn't do that. The Lord Jesus cared about where they were and their pain now. But he cared enough also to connect the dots to the ultimate cause of their pain. And that was sin. And their need for a, a redeemer. And that pointed to him in every case. Show us, they said, a miraculous sign from heaven. When he cast out demons, they said, not good enough. He's just doing it by Beelzebul, the chief of demons. He's doing it by Satan, the devil. See, he's really just a, just a Satanist hiding, pretending to be religious. That's how he gets rid of the demons. Who did Jesus have an excoriating answer to that one? That's another message. Because to point to the work of the Spirit of God, who gives his word and points to Christ and convicts our hearts, and then to ascribe that to the devil, and never to return to Christ. That's the unforgivable sin. Hmm. If you're worried, by the way, that you've committed the unforgivable sin, let me ask you this. Do you want to come back to Jesus? If the answer is yes, then you haven't, because the Holy Spirit's still at work in your heart. You haven't committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So that's the final rejection and turning aside. But that's what these people, the religious establishment, the goodies, the goody two-shoes of their day were saying, look, that's not real. Those authenticating signs don't mean what they look like. I used to operate in the Black Sea back when it was a Soviet lake. Most of you are too young to remember the height of the Cold War. Boy, I do. I was on a small ship, one of two that went tooling around there just south of the Crimea and Sevastopol, the big uh, Soviet naval, naval base. And, and we were surrounded, our two little ships, with Soviet surface ships, aircraft craft overhead, and periscopes of submarines popping up just nearby. And they were sending us a message. You're only here because we let you be. <laughs> We were exercising freedom of the seas, and they were saying, mm, only because we want you to for now. But we had a problem. We had to communicate between our ships. It was at that point a null zone in the atmospheric conditions. You couldn't have high frequency. That doesn't mean much to you. Long-range radio communication. So it's only line of sight, UHF, ultra-high frequency. So line of sight, you're talking. Or semaphore, or you know, with waving flags or flashing lights or something like that. That's about all you could do to communicate between the ships. But what happens if, if uh, those communications are being intercepted? And they were. 
Well, we had a, uh, an encryption system. Listen, back then it was new. Didn't usually work. <laughs> it works a lot better now, but didn't work very well back then. I can say it now, it's not classified. <laughs> that was a problem. So what are we going to do? Well, we had something called authentication. These tables. So-and-so, this is so-and-so, you'd use your code name, and then they, and they'd say, uh, this, is what, this is my signal, and the other person would come back and say, request you authenticate and give you certain numbers, and you'd come back and say, I authenticate, and you'd give them some others, you got them out of a book. It was a scrambled code book, and it was always changing. It was having to do it by hand. We don't do it like that anymore. I'm glad, not usually. But the authentication was important. What did it mean? It meant I'm not an impersonator. I'm really who I say I am. My message is real. It's authentic. That's what miracles are for in the Bible. You know, a man named Gerhardus Voss, I just got it passingly mentioned. He wrote a book. Actually, it was published posthumously by his son, but it was a wonderful book called Biblical Theology. I read it just before going to seminary. Opened my eyes to reading the Bible like nothing I'd read apart from the Bible before in my life. And among the things he noticed was this. He said, miracles don't just happen helter-skelter down through history. You know, randomly. Random walk through Wall Street. Well, a random walk through miracles. It doesn't work like that in the Bible. They come in clusters in bursts. And then he says, prophetic revelation does not just randomly happen down through history. It comes in bursts, in clusters, through the authenticated messengers of God, the prophets and then the apostles. And these bursts, he then noticed, occurred right at hinge points in the unfolding drama of redemption. The great story of God seeking and saving his people. A burst at the time of Noah. A burst at the time, for example, of, of Abraham. And especially a big burst at the time of the Exodus under Moses. A burst at the time of David. A burst at the time of Elijah and Elisha. Ah, but the two great bursts. The crescendos of the overture of redemption come at the coming of Jesus. And the coming again of Jesus. Jesus could say, I mean, first of all, uh, at the upper room, an upper room, a place where Jesus was staying at the beginning of his ministry, Nicodemus, the teacher of the Jews. He was the ideologist for the Pharisees. He comes by night to Jesus. He says, teacher, we know you are a teacher come from God because no one could do the things you do. Unless God's with him. The authentication was there and Nicodemus knew it. He didn't come out of the closet as a follower of Jesus for some time later. And the gospel says it's shame on him. Because he loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. But he did at the time of Christ's death. He speaks up and he comes out and he comes clean. Miracles. Jesus says, you people won't believe unless you see miracles. He says, if I do the things my father does, then believe me for the miracles sake. Jesus could say that. In the upper room, he would tell his disciples the things that I've done. And by the way, he could say, he did say, 
if I had not done greater works, greater miracles than anyone before me. That's saying something. Think of Elijah. Think of Moses. Jesus said, if I hadn't done more than anyone who's come before me, they wouldn't be so exposed in their sin, their recalcitrance, but now they have no excuse. And then he says to his disciples in the upper room the night in which he's betrayed, he says, the things I do, you will do, and greater things than you will do. And then I open the book of Acts, and I don't see many. I see a couple of really important flashpoints there, and there are some miracles that the apostles in particular do. And they authenticate their message. But at first glance, it doesn't seem there's any miracle power there. Any surge far greater than what Jesus has done. What's happened? Was Jesus wrong? Of course not. Have I misunderstood something? Yes. <laughs> what have I misunderstood? The greatest miracle of all, the valley of dry bones, Ezekiel 37. Bringing life from the death and all of Jesus' ministry. Crowds would follow him and then fall away. They'd acclaim him on Palm Sunday and shout, crucify him the following Friday. And you never saw what he came to do because he had not yet finished his work, ascended to the Father, and poured out his spirit. And what was that work to do? To bring his people and the nations in mighty movements of the Spirit of God, bringing revival and reformation, bringing spiritual renewal by waves. And what do you see in the book of Acts? Revival after revival after revival. And the gospel going from Jerusalem through all Judea into Samaria and unto Antioch and the uttermost parts of the earth. The greatest miracle of all is the changing of a heart. And how can a heart be changed? How can a heart be changed? It's by getting a good book. You know, we pull it off in self-help and I, I make myself better. No, no, no. Nicodemus had tried that and it didn't work. Talked about that in an earlier service. No, it takes a greater miracle than that. It takes a miracle of death and resurrection. Only possible because we can die and rise again in the person of a champion substitute. And that's what Jonah's sign signified. Now, wait a minute, you're thinking, or maybe you're thinking. Sam, you know, I, I read the story of Jonah. He didn't exactly uh, uh, willingly die for his own people. Well, in a way, he did. He, he ran from his own people in order, I believe, that the judgment of God that he knew would fall on him would not fall on his people. If it fell on Gentile sailors, well, so much for them. But it's not that he hated them because he cared enough about them to say, toss me over. His motive wasn't pure. But he did symbolize one who would come whose motive was pure. And it's often said that soldiers in the trenches don't fight for a cause, they're fighting for their buddies. There's some truth in that, I know it firsthand, but, but I would suggest that if that's all they're fighting for, they're not much different than a gang member. Really, fighting for your buddies. You've got to have a reason to 
put your life on the line that is bigger than just your buddies around you. It needs to be rooted ultimately in the God who made you and made me. Jesus would come and he would say, Lord, let the sins of your people fall on me. He would go through the true death of which the sea creature and Jonah's being enveloped in it represented in picture. He would come again to life the third day, be raised from the dead as Jonah's release from the from the interior of that, of that uh, sea creature represented. And Jesus says, because I live, you will live also. And we can begin to understand that we can say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live... To the praise of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ah, there is the answer to Nicodemus' question and yearning. How can a man be born when he's old? Even if I had a, all my previous sins wiped away and I could start fresh, my very next step comes out of the habits with which I've acculturated myself in a sinful environment. My own sinful heart. I'll find a way to do something wrong. Simply wiping out my previous sins doesn't help me. I need to be a new creation. Ah, Paul says, if any man be in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Yes, you see, when Jesus came, his deeds authenticated his message and his death and resurrection fulfilled the prefigured sign of Jonah. Jesus went through death and hell in the place of his people. Three days, three nights. Some have said, oh, well, that part Jesus got wrong. If he died on Friday and was raised Easter Sunday morning, that's not three days and three nights. Others say, well, it had to be then he had to die on what we call Monday, Thursday, the day before. If you do that, you have other problems with the whole uh, chronology of Easter week of uh, what we call Holy Week between, um, between Palm Sunday and Easter. Well, how do you fit it in? Jesus said three days and three nights. Well, we need to understand that Jesus went through hell for us, not just death. When did he do that? Some say, oh, well, from 1 Peter, Peter, he goes uh, to those who are in prison. But that, that wasn't the time between his death and resurrection. Jesus could say to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. So when did Jesus preach to those who are now in prison from 1 Peter? Well, by the spirit of Christ who was in Noah proclaiming the message before it was too late in the days of the flood. But when then did Jesus go through hell? He hung on the cross for six hours, from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon. Do you know what happened at noon, up to noon? There were conversations, if you will, hardly conversations. There were spoken words by the Lord Jesus. Prayers to his father. Comments to those around him. Woman. Your son. 
Behold, your mother. Wonderful, tender things where he's not thinking about himself. And then at noon, at noon, a darkness envelops the earth where he was, the whole land where he was. In uh, the ten, at the time of the Exodus, you remember one of the final judgments on Egypt was darkness, so thick it could be felt. Remember, that's what the Bible says. Here was a darkness, and in that darkness, something remarkable. What's remarkable is there's no word from Jesus to his father or from his father to him. No prayer and no reply. What was happening? The father was turning his righteous and holy back upon the human nature of the person of Jesus, who is his son, who feels the alienation, the emptiness, the punishment, rejection, and shame, the isolation, and everything, separation from God, the heart of what hell is. People say sometimes to me, I believe that we have our hell right here on earth. And I tell them, no, you haven't. Be dead 10 seconds and not believe that. But there's one place when you do see hell on earth, you do see it in the darkness at noon on Calvary. And at the end of that three hour period, the Lord Jesus says, Father, into your hands. Again, it's a Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he says, It is finished. And he doesn't whimper it. It comes out, I'm confident, as a, as a triumphant declaration. It is finished. And a crucified person supposed to be there as an example to other people suffering under Romans execution laws for days until they finally expire. Jesus dismisses his spirit because it's finished. You remember? The chief of the execution squad does it for a living. Looked at that and said, surely this is God's son. It's remarkable. And because Jesus died and died for you and me, we don't go through death if we're in him. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Our death isn't like the death it would have been. Our physical death for us is as it were falling asleep. Paul says, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Death for the Christian is not an enemy anymore the way it was. Oh, it's still an enemy. It's still an anomaly, an aberration. It's still a hideous deformation of what God intends it to be and will restore it to be at the return of Jesus Christ. But right now, right now, we live differently. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And if we do believe it, it makes a difference. Because I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. And if that's true, there's a new dynamic or ought to be in our lives. 
we now have the freedom to choose what is right, to show love for God and love for those around us, to love Ninevites as God cared for Ninevites. And if our Pharisaic hearts are too hard to do that, it may be because we've never really come to understand the meaning of the sign of Jonah and bowed in submission before the cross. There shall no sign, Jesus said, be given this generation except the sign of Jonah. Now, he would continue to do miracles. He had already, and he'd do some more. But for those who were recalcitrant, who had said, give me a sign that, uh, that I can accept. Nope, I won't accept that sign. I judge that as inadequate. Nope, I judge that one as p- potentially having been uh, uh, falsified by Satan himself. No, I don't accept. Uh, for such people, Jesus said, there is a sign. There is a sign. The death and resurrection of Christ. And it's not a sign that they will judge, but a sign that will judge them. Forty years, one generation, from Calvary, the Roman legions swept around Jerusalem, raised the city to the ground, destroyed the temple. Ah, the earthly temple. But Jesus had said, destroy this temple referring to his body, and I will raise it up in three days. See, we don't have to pray toward a direction, toward Jerusalem, as Muslims pray toward Mecca. We pray to Christ. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son, through the power of the Spirit. And as we pray, the Spirit prays with us, because we often don't know how. Jesus is at the right hand of God. He intercedes for us, because he's our elder brother in the faith, and our Father understands those prayers in our weakness. And he receives us with open arms. And he means for our lives to be transformed so that the world can see that the sign of Jonah is alive in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Oh, Lord, Make that real to each one of us here, I pray. If there's one that does not know Jesus as Savior, is not trusting him fully and wholly for salvation from sin, may they come to put that trust in him today and experience being in Christ, an adopted child in the family of God. And for those of us who have, O Lord, we pray that you would search out those areas in our hearts where we are deaf to the Ninevites around us or uncaring and judgmental rather than loving and desiring for them to come to Jesus. We thank you that you're a holy God and never compromise your holiness to reach us. And yet we thank you, O Lord, that without compromising your holiness, you sent us Jesus. We pray that you would make us more like him. We ask it in his name. Amen.